I'm really, really excited about the study we're about to do with IJM on justice. IJM has been a partner and a friend of IF Gathering for a long time. And, and honestly, we wanted to go behind the curtain of our deep passion for justice. It's been part of IF Gathering since the very beginning. And the reason why is this because it's the heart of God. God has called us and equipped us to love this world and to meet the need in the world. I know this won't be easy. I know this is going to be uncomfortable, but I also know there is nothing more important. It is worth it because we have been loved, we have been saved and set apart for a purpose. And that purpose is that perhaps people may feel their way toward God. We have been set in our time and in our place. We have been set in our time and in our place. To love people, to bring about reconciliation so that people can find God. To bring about reconciliation so that people can find God. Let's do that. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The hostility is over. I don't need a program or a process or a, a, a racial reconciliation book. I, I don't need someone to explain the, the, the definitions of, of, of critical race theory or, or social justice. I don't, I don't need, I, all I need to do is open up my Bible to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and following to understand that, that the wrestling and the, and the challenges and the, the hostility, it's over because you and I are are in Christ. As we follow the text to verses 17 and 18, we find out the outcome intended by God the Father through Christ as we read. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. John Calvin in his commentary said the following. He said that, quote, all that Christ has done toward effecting a reconciliation would have been of no service if the gospel had not proclaimed it. I'm going to stop there because I want to amplify something that Calvin is saying. The reconciliation that, we're, that, that the world is seeking, that the church may not recognize or realize that, that, that has already been won, is done by the proclamation of the gospel. It's gospel proclamation that allows anyone to have access to reconciliation, both to God the Father and to one another. This was the plan of God from the beginning. This was the, the, the idea that, that God the Father had before he said, let there be light. And for any one of us to think that we have a better plan than God the Father who created it all, we're, 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 we're lost in our mind. This is the plan of God. Welcome to Thoroughly Equipped, a podcast for women where we compare the popular women's ministry teachings, books, conferences, Bible studies, etc. to scripture. Our focus is 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm your host, Malbatos. May this episode bless you and bring glory to God. Hello, ladies, and thank you for tuning into this episode. If you are new, welcome. Um, so it's been about a month, I think, since I posted an episode. I had to take a bit of a break on production for two reasons. One, my study on the topics we are going to be looking at here went far beyond what I had anticipated. And two, it's coming upon the end of the homeschooling year, meaning that all the homeschooling stuff I'm involved in is in a bit of an overdrive. <laughs> the last two weeks of the co-op I volunteer for is wrapping things up and planning for the next school year, so I've had to spend time focused on all that, which means that these next couple of episodes may be a bit slow going. But I want to uh, take some time to welcome those who are new, who found TE through my interview on the Conversations That Matter podcast YouTube channel. 
I also want to really thank John Harris for giving me the chance to voice my concerns about women's ministry in general, and um, especially tackling Jenny Allen's ministry if. If you don't know or haven't watched Conversations That Matter by John Harris, I totally suggest that you do. It's a great resource in looking at political issues of our day, and especially social justice and woke ideology. Also, I do not normally keep track of the podcast stats, but I did recently come across my Apple podcast reviews and just want to say I'm just so blessed to hear what you guys have to say about this resource. As of today, it only has 10 reviews, but uh, those reviews rate TE with a 5 out of 5 star rating. So, um, my goal is to produce a resource that's not only good in quality, that's something I'm slowly learning, but a podcast that is true and thorough in its presentation. So, it really means so much to me that you guys are stating just that in your reviews. There is always, of course, the the artist dilemma. I see where I mess up and could have done better, but your comments have encouraged me to keep going and continue to work hard in this. So, again, thank you for all your comments and prayers. For those of you who are new, I just want to lay a little background for you. I have taken pretty much a whole season to look hard at Jenny Allen's ministry if. Now, I've presented how the If Gathering speakers handle scripture. I've presented some of the uh, recurring speakers at If and their ministry, especially looking at their obedience to God's instruction to women in church leadership. I've presented their promotion of the Enneagram and Christian mysticism. As I am wrapping up this season, we are addressing the tools that if incorporates with scripture to make disciples. We've looked at Jenny Allen's integration of psychology in her Philippian study and her promotion of psychotherapist Dr. Kurt Thompson, who has been a key speaker at several of the if gatherings and if lead conferences. Now I want to present to you if's inclusion of ministries that promote critical race theory and woke ideology. But before I do that, I want to show you how this type of ideology enters the church. It starts as the church moves away from its mission to proclaim the good news to deciding that the church's mission is to change the world or make it a better place. This type of change is very slight and pulls at the heartstrings and compassion of those within the church, the heart and compassion of Christians, to see justice accomplished in this world. This desire is good, and the acts of justice are fruits of a heart reconciled to God. But the devil and our flesh are very good at taking something that God created to be good and twist it to make it more important than what God has actually called us to do. One of the ways that the devil takes our eyes off the gospel is to add to it and to distract the church from her mission. And one of the most deceptive ways he has done that is through what is called the social gospel. In essence, the social gospel conflates social justice with the gospel. The gospel becomes more about changing the world for the better, attending to the poor, setting free the slaves, working towards um, racial reconciliation or egalitarianism in social structures, powers, gender roles, class, and even age. The goal of the gospel becomes not the salvation of individuals who were lost and are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, but it is broadened to make it the salvation of the world through the acts of justice by individuals. Therefore, the gospel becomes a means to bring people into the church working for or towards reconciliation instead of a proclamation of a finished work of God that brought reconciliation, which people receive as a gift. These are two completely different thoughts. Either go and bring reconciliation or receive reconciliation. 
So starting with this episode, I want to expose some of the theological problems presented by the IF ministry in their IF Equip study titled, Arise, a study on God's heart for justice. As we go through what this study teaches and more importantly, what it doesn't teach about man, God, and justice, you will see what I describe as doorways to the social gospel, paths of doctrine that draw one away from the gospel and towards works of man's law. I hope in these episodes to lay the foundation for what will come next when we will look at Latasha Morrison's ministry and book, Be the Bridge, as well as other speakers that have promoted a social gospel and have incorporated analytical tools such as critical race theory and worldly philosophies to make disciples after themselves instead of disciples after Christ. So, let's dive in. Let's look at if equips arise a study on God's heart for justice. Arise is a six-week study, five days a week, that gives a short daily Bible reading, certain particular verses on justice, Arise's own teaching on justice, and includes video clips discussing the daily topic with members who work for the International Justice Mission. Quote, the first week of the study lays a foundation by discussing God's just character, end quote. And I commend it for starting with that. We should not talk about justice without talking about the God from which justice comes. So in week one, day one, titled The Image of God, we read this. Quote, a part of each and every one of us looks like God. Incredible. The God of the universe, above all things, creator of all things, Lord over all, decided to imprint humans with his image. Why? In this one simple, complex, and extraordinary moment, God gave every human the greatest amount of dignity imaginable when he made us in his image. Each gender, young and old, all races, all backgrounds, and all cultures, all are represented. We live our lives, sleep, eat, breathe, work, and have relationships all with the imprint of God upon us in each and every moment, wherever we go and whatever we are doing. This is the truest form of dignity. When we treat people or are treated in a way that does not reflect this God-given dignity, injustice occurs. Now this is where they are going to start. That humanity was created in God's image, and because of this, all people deserve dignity and justice. And this is most certainly true. But what I find interesting is how Arise chooses to go about presenting God's character. Instead of starting with God, getting into his holiness, sovereignty, goodness, and righteousness, which um, has a direct connection to justice, and they don't even mention it um, within this study, they start with the image of God in man. Now, why is this interesting to me? John Calvin stated, quote, no man can survey himself without forthwith turning his thoughts towards the God in whom he lives and moves, because it is perfectly obvious that the endowments, my note here, the image of God, which we possess cannot possibly be from ourselves, nay, that our very being is nothing else than subsistence in God alone. It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he have previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. For, such is our innate pride, we always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced, by clear evidence, of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. Convinced, however, we are not if we look to ourselves only and not to the Lord also. He being the only standard by the application of which this conviction can be produced. For since we are all naturally prone to hypocrisy, any empty semblance of righteousness is quite enough to satisfy us instead of righteousness itself. That's John Calvin, Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 1, Chapter 1. John Calvin is basically saying that should we want to arrive at the true knowledge of man, we do not start with man as man will find some way to justify himself. To know man, we must start with the standard, Christ. We will have no right understanding of the image of God without first looking at God. And if we do not first 
contemplate the face of God, we cannot truly know justice. I believe that the image of God in all humanity is the reason why all deserve to be treated with impartiality, but justice ultimately is not only to be given because man is created in God's image, but because of the law which springs forth from God's character. If the law is left out and we do not define justice by God's character and his law, we will define it by man's. Is justice to be based off the value and dignity of man, or is it to be based off the value of God and his word? Here is where what is missing from our eyes will affect what we believe justice is and how to enact it. I will explain as we go on. So let's see what they say about justice. Quote, what is justice? Webster's Dictionary defines justice or just as conformity to truth, fact, or reason, and treating people in a way that is considered morally right. When we conform to the truth that all humans have dignity because of the image of God, we have a greater ability to act justly. When we understand the great amount of worth, value, and dignity that all humans have because of the image of God, the concept of treating people in the morally right way is now connected to the supernatural. Alright, and this is going to be my main issue with the study, and it's a very important issue. They define justice as conformity to truth, fact, or reason, and treating people in a way that is considered morally right. But do not equate truth, fact, reason, and what is morally right with God's word. In fact, they go even further. Quote, in the original Hebrew and Greek languages of the Bible, the word for justice is the same as righteousness. Righteousness means freedom and treating people justly, as in viewing them as perfectly upright with nothing against them and restoring to this status. As his children, God treats us in a righteous manner and has called us to treat others the same way. Justice matters because God is just within his character. He is the creator of justice. It runs through him and overflows out of him. And when that dignity, the very image of the Most High God, is taken away from one of his own, he cares deeply. End quote. By Arise's definition, for one to be righteous, they must treat people justly. To treat people justly, you must begin with the presupposition that all people are to be viewed, quote, as perfectly upright with nothing against them, thereby restoring them to this status. Now compare their definition of righteousness with gotquestion.org's definition. Quote, dictionaries define righteousness as behavior that is morally justifiable or right. Such behavior is characterized by accepted standards of morality, justice, virtue, and uprightness. The Bible standard of human righteousness is God's own perfection in every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, and every word. Thus, God's law, as given in the Bible, both describe his own character and constitute the plumb line by which he measures human righteousness." The Truth Be Known podcast, a great podcast, also on the Christian podcast community, <laughs> has a great episode on justice and righteousness and its connections and differences. Listen to them give a brief explanation of the difference between the two. So today, I mean, what a providential time to discuss God's justice and righteousness. There's a lot of confusion around those things today, wouldn't you say? Yes, absolutely. Um, we use those words interchangeably quite often. They do not mean the exact same things. Whenever I go through a study of the attributes of God with um, a Bible study, um, this is one of the areas that I, I want to stop and help them understand the difference between one or the other. And it's it's really a difference between law and order. Um, and, uh, and, and I think it really ties into God's holiness as well. And it's right at the center of the gospel, especially when you go through books like the book of Romans. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it's a good place to say that when we talk about God's attributes, there is no attribute that can be separated from any of God's other attributes, right? So God is sovereign and he's holy and he's love. And those things always simultaneously exist. You can't separate one 
from another, although we hear folks try to do that more and more these days. Um, I, I like to say when we talk about, and, and you're right, the words are very similar. In fact, if I remember correctly, they stem from the same uh, root word in the Greek. Yes. Um, I, I tend to tell people that justice is the way God legislates or enacts his righteousness, um, or, or at least in part. And, and yeah, so I, I mean, brother, I can't think of any other attribute of God that's been highlighted more just in the last probably two years than this one, right? There's whole movements based on, on so-called justice. Um, and, and it's interesting because, you know, when we think about justice, we have to ask the question, what is true justice? And that's defined by God, right? Amen. Yeah. So whenever you go through the Old Testament, you see the word justice show off often, show up often. God is a God of justice. Uh, but the question is, what does he mean by justice? And it's not, it's not, um, it's not a mystery. You know, God revealed his law to the Israelites going back to the beginning, the five books of Moses. And that really is the standard that he put out there for justice and righteousness. In fact, when you get into the book of Romans, Romans shows us that there have been two manifestations of God's righteousness. One was the law, which is perfect and holy and just, but no one is able to meet that standard. And then thanks be to God that the second manifestation was Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ having given himself up as the propitiation for the wrath of God. Um, he provided a way for us to be able to obtain that righteousness that we so desperately need. And without that righteousness, none of us would be able to get into heaven. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about the words being slightly different. We, if you were to look up the definition of righteousness in the dictionary to say something to the effect of the quality of being right um, or morally right or justifiable, and, it, you know, so we're talking about God's character, who he is. Everything God does comes from his state of being a righteous being. God is not capable of doing something other than what is right. Because of who God is, you cannot talk about God being just apart from God's other attributes. Righteousness is rooted in God's holiness and is displayed in his law and ultimately is given in Christ. The law is the standard of that righteousness, and justice is the enactment of that standard. It is not viewing people as perfectly upright and restoring them to this status. It is to treat them according to God's law. To be perfectly upright, one must perfectly obey God's law. So how this works out in presenting the gospel, I don't know. <laughs> because to give the gospel to one is to first explain how one is not perfectly upright. How can I treat one perfectly upright if I am proclaiming to them that they are not, that they have transgressed God's law and are now destined for wrath should they not turn to Christ? So, as you can see, there is a major problem with Arise's definition of justice and righteousness. That is a problem in itself for the study. However, another issue crops up with starting with the dignity of man instead of the character of God as the reason for justice. One of the main teachings in the social gospel is that man is not so bad and God is not really mad. Saddened and disappointed, but most certainly not wrathful and full of justice against the nature of man. All are God's children because all are made in his image. Listen to this clip from week one, day one, where Jenny Allen asked Dr. Glenn Kreider and Holly Burkhalter from IJM about the importance of justice and why it matters. I want to especially hone in on Ms. Burkhalter's response to this question because it applies to what we just read. So I'd love to hear from each of you why this matters so much to you. Well, it matters because it matters to God. God, having created us in his image and likeness, uh, means that every human being has dignity. And there's, there's no hint in the scriptures and there's no hint in the Christian tradition. And really there's no hint um, in, in, in mainstream human thought that certain lives are more important than others. And we live in a world, and we've constantly, consistently lived in a world, where uh, polarization, where opposition, where us versus them has characterized us. But deep down inside, I think we all know that human beings have dignity and they're created in the image of God to serve him. That reminds me of what Mother Teresa said when 
they asked her why she gave her life away the way that she did for people. And she said, because I just look at every single person and I see Jesus, which is so biblical, but we sometimes forget and we miss it. Well, first off, it is not biblical that we can look at people and see Jesus. This is rapidly becoming a saying in the church and is really grounded in a panentheistic view of God. I have addressed this a bit in T.E.'s critique on Sarah Young, but for a better resource on this, I would urge you to listen to Elisa Childers' interview with Andrea Widget on Kenneth Copeland and Richard Rohr. They dive into this specific teaching, but moving on. Tell us just a little bit about why this means so much to you. Imago Dei, the image of God, uh, the most radical concept uh, in creation, to my mind, as, and, and too big for our feeble you know, brains to actually take in. But I think that for me as a relatively new Christian, the, the aspect of that that matters to me the most is the notion that the the most damaged and the most thrown away and the most despised of us all is uh, is in God's uh, eyes the the brother and sister of his son you know that original belovedness you know we in our christian tradition we talk about being original sin, I think in terms of, which, which I know what that means, but for me, the image of God means we were originally, from the moment of our, of our, our, you know, before we could even have a conscious thought, we were beloved, utterly and completely, 100%, every one of us. Arise will also use Matthew 25, 31 to 46 to support this idea in week four, day five, claiming that Jesus is equating all the poor, needy, and oppressed to brothers and sisters of Christ. But that doesn't fit what scripture says about who are the brothers and sisters of Christ. While this is true that all are created by God and all do have his image, not all are brothers and sisters. Scripture makes a distinction between those who belong to Christ, those who make up his bride, and those who will be eternally separated from Christ when he returns. All may be God's offspring in a sense, as Paul uses the term in Acts 17, but all of us offspring were by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. It is for all who receive him, who believe in his name, that he gives the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1, 11-13 There is an even wider distinction between brothers and sisters of Christ and the rest of the world, and that is the distinction of sanctification. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Hebrews 2.11 For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Romans 8.29 So while Arise teaches us that all humans are made in God's image, they neglect to mention, however, that the image is misused because of the curse on Adam after the fall. I say, misused, because the image of God remains, but it is now used to corrupt and satisfy our sinful nature instead to glorify the one it reflects. Let's examine this a bit. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? James Coates from Grace Life Church of Edmonton has a sermon series on the kingdom of God. Here's a clip on what he teaches on the image of God in relation to the kingdom of God. I highly suggest you listen to the whole sermon series, and all those links will be in the show notes. Here in Genesis 1.26, we get to witness an intra-Trinitarian discourse that captures the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit counseling together and purposing to make man. Now, the two terms here used, image and likeness, are virtual synonyms. God is going to make man in his image and likeness. And these two words are virtual synonyms. Together, they indicate at least two realities. One is that man is God's representative. And so bearing God's image, man represents God on earth. 
And this ties directly into man's ruling function over the earth. He is God's representative, the one through whom God is going to mediate his rule and reign from heaven. And two is that man is a son of God. Man is a son of God. In fact, Luke makes this point in the genealogy of Luke 3.38, where Adam is identified as the son of God. And this too ties directly into man's ruling function over the earth in that man has a unique relationship with God. Distinct from everything else that God created, man was created for relationship and fellowship with God. And so that man is made in the image and likeness of God speaks to his capacity to rule over the earth. To mediate God's rule and reign over the earth, man would have to have the capacity to do so. And by being made in the image and likeness of God, man has that capacity. Not just investing man with the authority to rule, but also with all of the necessary faculties to do so. Man has everything he needs in order to rule over the earth. And we have this statement of God creating man in verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God creates man in his own image, and he creates them both male and female. By the way, this indicates that both biology and gender are inseparable. And it also indicates that both the man and the woman, woman, Adam and Eve, each bear the image of God. Both the man and the woman are made in God's image so that both the man and the woman have a part to play in ruling over the earth where the woman takes on a helping role as per Genesis 2.18. So man is made in God's image and likeness. And this identifies him as both being God's representative on earth and as possessing a unique relationship with God, furnishing him with all that he needs to mediate God's rule and reign over the earth. That's the image of God. The image of God are the traits given to humanity to represent rule and reign on earth, to accomplish God's kingdom mandate. All of mankind is made in this image, but only those who are born again, those born of water and spirit, who are brothers and sisters of Christ, will accomplish God's will. It is those who are made in God's image and set free to walk in the spirit that are in God's family. What Arise does not include that has implications for the image of God and the enactment of justice is that man transgressed the law given to him in the garden, bringing a curse upon mankind by which the image of God is now used to satisfy our flesh instead of ruling and reigning as God instructed in the garden. We therefore, apart from Christ's sanctification, will exercise our idea of justice instead of God's justice and righteous law. If we don't rightly understand what it means to bear the image of God, it will directly affect one's idea of justice. We are not called to merely give someone dignity because they bear the image of God by rescuing them from physical suffering or calling for laws and certain societal changes. Christ is, through the proclamation of the gospel and through their entrance into the kingdom by it, restoring that individual so their image will bring glory to God in obedience to his word. The study goes on to explain why justice matters. Quote, Seeking justice for all humanity is gospel work, and therefore it matters. It is not social, political, or trendy work, but gospel work. The concept of justice is not new, but has been around forever, because it's embodied in the character of the eternal God. Because it matters to God, it matters to us, his followers. Remember when Jesus taught us how to pray in Matthew 6, 9-13? Think about verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom is just. As followers of Christ, we strive to help build God's just kingdom here on earth. To care, as Jesus did, for the marginalized, the poor, the discriminated against, and the outcast. It matters now and for all eternity, end quote. There are two other teachings that social gospel advocates teach. One, 
that justice, especially social justice, is gospel work, and two, that gospel work is how we build God's kingdom. Notice what Arise stated for why enacting justice should matter, because it is gospel work. This undermines the power of the gospel and the proclamation of it. Since the gospel is a proclamation of a finished work of Christ in reconciling a people to God, to state that justice, what you will see arise, equate to acts of compassion as a gospel work, is to, in essence, say that these acts either enhance or solidify the proclamation. Basically, that they are needed to help the gospel do its work. And that is a problem. The acceptance of the gospel is accomplished through a work of the Holy Spirit. We do not need acts of compassion or justice to convince one that they are a sinner in need of a sacrifice poured out for their sins so they may be right with God. No, justice, true justice and acts of compassion are fruits of a sanctified life, fruits of a work done by God in the hearts of individuals. Notice what Arise connects with building the kingdom, to care for the marginalized, the poor, the discriminated against, and the outcast, and that to care for them matters for all eternity. So, is this work of justice and compassion how we build God's kingdom? Well, that would depend on how one defines the kingdom of God. And that is an important thing for women to think about. What does scripture say about the kingdom and what is it to live in it? Because to answer this question will have massive impacts on how we view our roles as women in this kingdom. And so it will affect what we believe good works are and what justice looks like in that kingdom. Jesus clearly made a distinction between what we know a kingdom to be and look like in this world and what his kingdom looks like when he stated that my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. John eighteen thirty six. It is Jesus's kingdom, Luke twenty-two thirty, John eighteen thirty-six, cross-reference Matthew twenty twenty-one and Luke twenty-three forty-two. It is the kingdom of God's beloved Son, Colossians one thirteen. It is ruled by the mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, First Timothy two five. This mediation is our redemption. Entrance into the kingdom is not accomplished through social justice or compassion or unity or peace. Entrance into the kingdom and the spreading of it is through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ who calls out a people to be a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that they may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2, 9. Notice what God's chosen people are to do. Proclaim Christ's excellencies. Kevin DeYoung in his book, What is the Mission of the Church? Making Sense of Social Justice, Shalom, and the Great Commission, describes Christ's kingdom in a way that is very helpful in clarifying the redemptive work of the kingdom. Quote, there are few important ramifications that flow from understanding the kingdom of God as his redemptive rule. For one thing, understanding the kingdom is a dynamic relational word rather than a geographic one keeps us from thinking that extending the kingdom of God is the right way to describe planting trees or delivering hot meals to the homeless. Sometimes people talk as if by renovating a city park or turning a housing slum into affordable, livable apartments, we are extending God's reign over that park or that neighborhood. We're bringing order from chaos, someone might say, and therefore expanding the kingdom. But as we've seen, the kingdom isn't geographical. Rather, it's defined relationally and dynamically. It exists where knees and hearts bow to the king and submit to him. And therefore, you cannot expand the kingdom by bringing peace and order and justice to a certain area of the world. 
Good deeds are good, but they don't broaden the borders of the kingdom. The only way the kingdom of God, the redemptive rule of God, is extended is when he brings another sinner to renounce sin and self-righteousness and bow his knee to King Jesus. Likewise, it's important to affirm that we cannot extend the redemptive rule of God over non-Christians. Of course, we can show the unbelieving world something of what the kingdom is and will be. We can testify and witness to its, its existence and its character. But because the kingdom is a matter of relationship between the king and his subjects, we cannot extend the kingdom of God over people who will not submit to the king's rule. It is through faith in the king that someone is transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun, Colossians 1.13. Practically speaking, therefore, we should not talk about our efforts to change societal structures as extending the kingdom, even if they are successful. A non-Christian person may be living in as just and good a society as is realistically imaginable, but the Bible says that until he comes to Christ, he has no part of the kingdom of the sun. He is still captive under the kingdom of darkness, even if relatively comfortably for a while. Page 121 to 122. So, rightly understanding the gospel and rightly understanding the kingdom of God is extremely important to any study on justice. And Arise doesn't even touch these doctrines. And I believe there is a reason for this, because once you make justice a gospel work and justice a mission of the church Catholic, you change the roles of men and women within the institution. The roles move from the more intimate, such as to the biological family and the family of God, to the social sphere. Don't get me wrong or misinterpret me. I'm not saying we don't engage in the social sphere, neither that we don't fight for justice nor perform acts of compassion, but true justice and love play out within the church and are to be reflected at its very starting point in the home. This is why Paul, when listing qualifications for elders, those who will be in authority within the church, to be men who first display truth, justice, and love in the family as they must manage their households well and keep his children under control with complete dignity. 1 Timothy 3.4 Now in week 1, day 2, titled God is Just, we read this. Quote, At the heart of God's character, he is just, which means in a world of crookedness, he is entirely upright. He is the originator, the sustainer, and the fulfillment of justice. Psalm 45.7 tells us that God hates wickedness, and justice is wickedness. Now my remark here, remember justice has not been connected with God's law, but is connected with human dignity and treating others as perfectly up upright, so that they may be restored to that status. Therefore, we can conclude that injustice or wickedness is to reject human dignity and not see them as perfectly upright. What all this looks like is subjectively left open. Quote, God hates injustice and the evil it entails. He loves justice for it is good. Gary Haugen, the CEO and founder of IJM, defines the sin of injustice as this, the abuse of power. Abusing power by taking from others the good things that God intended for them, namely their life, liberty, dignity, or the fruits of their love or their labor. Because injustice is evil and against God's character, he hates it and fights for those who have fallen victim to it. End quote. Okay. Number one. Now we have a bit more of a clarifier. The sin of injustice is the abuse of power. This is a true injustice, but injustice is not limited to those in power. In the grand scheme of things, all are abusers. No one is a victim when one stands before God. God does not differentiate between those in power and those without power. God shows no partiality in this way. Injustice is not merely an abuse of power, Biblical injustice is a rejection of God's character. But what is God's character? The law reveals to us God's character. The law is God's righteousness. It is just and right. An example, 
It is wickedness to covet. I do not need power to covet because coveting is a heart issue. I can be poor and powerless and covet. To covet is a sinful desire to reject God's plan and gifts given to me. And if all I did was covet and not act on it, I would still be condemned. God shows no partiality and gives to each as he deems right, and so forth, with all of God's commands. They are righteous, and therefore to walk in them is to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before our God. Micah 6 8. Because God is just and his law is rooted in his love and justice, the law reveals how one is to live justly, how we are to live righteously. Here Arise talks about how God responds to injustice. Quote, the first way God responds to justice is through his compassion. It literally says justice, but I think it's just a typo and they mean injustice. In Latin, compassion means to suffer with, and because our God is full of compassion, Psalm 116.5, he is near to those who suffer from injustice and feel their pain, end quote. I'm not quite sure this is correct. Um, the first way is through his law. The law reveals his justice and shows us our transgression and just how unrighteous we are. Compassion does not come first. Exposing our sin and exposing his just wrath against it comes first. Compassion comes with the gospel. Quote, the second way God responds to injustice is through his wrath, Romans 1.18. God is not indifferent towards injustice. Aren't you glad? Instead, he responds with righteous anger and judgment. He is not passive towards injustice. To believe he is God and follow him, we need him to have wrath towards injustice because it shows us that he is loving. How could he be loving if injustice didn't anger him and produce his wrath? We need God to be just, end quote. Now, this is interesting to me to ask if we are glad that God responds to injustice through his wrath. If this study actually addressed justice correctly, this would bring fear into our hearts, not get gladness. Though for the person in Christ, there is a sense of anticipation of the justice to come and honor and glory given to God when it is given in this age, but there's always a sense of fear too. Hence why we need Christ and the Gospels to always be on the forefront of our minds. The Truth Be Known podcast also addresses justice in light of God's wrath. It's interesting. The phrase, uh, well, I think it was no justice, no peace, I heard um, over and over and over again. And so that's a weird combination because you're talking about justice and then you're talking about doing violence until you get justice. Um, weird combination of things that don't go well together. Um, people, if people really wanted justice, we would get hell, right? Um, and just talk to that for a minute. I mean, if, if our society really wanted justice, they'd be forced to, to beg for an eternal punishment because that is the ultimate just penalty for wickedness, right? Yeah, and that's, that's exactly right. So now when we look at justice and righteousness, just to define the two really quickly. So righteousness is that God always does what is right, what is morally right, and he is the one that determines that standard. That is him as the lawgiver, giving the laws and the commandments by which he expects man to abide. And then justice really speaks towards God as a judge. He is um, Now he's evaluating what the penalty is for those who break the law. And we, this concept should be very familiar to us. I mean, in society, we all have laws that we have to follow. And if we break those laws, well, there is a, there's, a, there's a department that we refer to as the police department. Um, they're there to enforce it. And if they find a lawbreaker, they arrest us or they give us a ticket. And then we have to show up before a judge. And it's in the courthouse that justice is exercised. But you're absolutely right when we talk about ultimate justice. Um, this requires a, a knowledge of the depravity of man, that all of us are sinners. And the, also, we have to understand that because God is infinitely holy, he is perfectly righteous, and he is infinitely holy, we as sinners cannot even abide in his presence. We've been going through the book of Exodus, and we know that in the book of Exodus, God says multiple times, no one can look at my face mm -hmm. and, and live. No one can see me and live. And so we have this perfect standard that God abides by. 
and we fall just one sin. James 2.10 says, even if you've committed one, you're guilty of all, right? So we are guilty of all just by committing one sin. And so when we talk about justice, what is the just penalty for that crime? Well, it's eternity in hell. It's eternity in hell, and it may sound unfair, but eternity in hell, not simply because of the crime that we have committed, but because of the person that we have committed it against, and that's God, who is an infinite, holy God. And so, yeah, justice, if we really want justice, all of us should be burning in hell, and that is also the proper response to someone who wants to believe that salvation should be for everyone, you know, or that they complain that salvation is only for some people. Well, that's not fair. Look, if you want fair, if you want just, we, we all go to hell, and that is that is the reality, and that is what should keep all of us as Christians humble, mm -hmm. recognizing that the salvation that we have received is not on the basis of anything that you've done. It's not on the basis yeah. of anything that I've done. It's on the basis completely of what Jesus Christ has done and upon God's gracious mm -hmm. choice of us. And so we're not in a position to brag because we contributed. It's the Jonathan Edwards quote, um, you have contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary, Yeah. right? So yeah. we are not in a position to to brag and really a, a proper understanding of the righteousness of God should keep us humble in terms of those temptations to self-righteousness. So yes, in one sense, we can be thankful that God has wrath towards injustice, but that is until we take a good hard look at the law and understand that we are the ones performing the injustice. Notice the context that arises placing God's wrath, not against all who transgress his holy and just law because there have been and will be no mention of God's law in this study, but injustice or the sin of injustice is committed by those who have power and with that power abuse it by taking from others the good things that God intended for them, namely their life, liberty, dignity, or the fruits of their love or labor. God's wrath is not against those who are at enmity with God and sin against God, transgressing his law, but those who are at enmity with their fellow man and take from others. It's most definitely true that our sins against our neighbors are deserving of punishment, but here is where eternity and hell come into play. And what I'm going to say here may cause a kerfuffle. My transgressions against another human being are great sins. They are most deserving of terrible punishment, but not an eternal hell. I know that sounds harsh, but what grants one eternal hell is the transgression against an eternal being. To the world, this is an immense stumbling block as humanity is the pinnacle. We lower God's infinite holiness by implying that to transgress against him is not as bad as to transgress against our fellow man. In actuality, my sin against my neighbor is worthy of eternal punishment because I ultimately sin against my neighbor's creator. Perfect justice will come to all for all have transgressed against an infinite God. And we must have a right understanding of this, or we will exalt man above God, which is to transgress the first commandment. There is also another side to this. If we rightly understand the due punishment for transgressing against a holy God, we will, on the opposite side of that coin, rightly understand how to love neighbor when we obey God. And that is why you cannot talk about God being just without talking about God's law. Quote, the third way God responds to injustice is through rescue. Psalm 10, 17 to 18 says, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. With this, we see that God is not only angered and saddened by injustice, but, his des but he desires to do something about it, rescue. Upon Christ's return, he will fully make all things wrong right. Until then, he has called us followers of Christ to be defenders of justice and partner with him to live out his heart for setting others free. When we understand who God is and what he cares about, we can be encouraged to care about the same things. Isaiah 117 calls us to learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. For followers of Christ, justice is our call, our work, because it is crucial to the heart of God. We get to bring the light of Jesus into the darkness of injustice, bringing the hope of the gospel.
This is all true, but again, if we do not include God's law in the study, justice becomes subjective, and most likely, justice is then determined by society. And that is the exact problem that we have today in our society. Take abortion, for example. For those who are pro-choice, justice is fighting for women's rights, the right to choose. For those who understand God's law, justice is the right to life at conception, as God is creator of each person. Only he has the right to choose who gets to live and die. Continuing on in Arise Week 1, Day 2, we read this. Quote, the cross of Christ is a powerful and poignant reminder of God's just character. Paul reminds us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Since every human has sinned and fallen short of God's glory, Romans 3.23, the just payment for the sins we have committed is death. God could not turn a blind eye towards sin because it is directly against his good, righteous, loving, and just character. Either we experience an eternal death separated from God forever, paying the just penalty of our sin, or Jesus, the eternal perfect Son of God, lives a holy life, dies to satisfy God's wrath towards sin, pays the just penalty sin deserves, and rises again, defeating sin, death, and Satan forever. Romans 4.25 says it was Jesus who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The resurrection of Jesus justifies us, makes us upright before God. Because of the mercy of God, we do not receive the just penalty of our sin, but rather Jesus satisfied God's wrath and justice towards our sin so we might have eternal life. Through this, God proves himself to be the righteous judge over all things and enacts his justice throughout the world. End quote. Now, all of this, I am mentally yelling a resounding yes. Our not receiving God's just penalty for sin is done not only as a righteous judge, but a merciful judge. This is so true. It is also his enactment of grace throughout the world. But to clarify even more, which Arise does not, it is God's act of grace to all those who repent and believe. It was an act of divine justice poured out on an innocent man and an act of mercy for a wicked people. Justice throughout the world will come when Christ's Lord and the righteous judge returns. John 5.26-29 and 2 Timothy 4.1 And it is a justice that we all must be warned about because it is a complete and perfect justice that will impartially judge each and every one. Each will be held accountable for either their obedience to God's law, or they will have been shown grace through the new covenant because of their faith in the blood of Christ poured out for their sins. Matthew 26, 28, Ephesians 1, 7, and Revelations 1, 5. Now is the time of proclamation that the commencement of the kingdom will come where the king will judge all. And either you will be in the kingdom because of Christ's enacted justifying work accomplished for you, or you will be judged justly and cast out for all eternity. So I give credit to Arise for presenting the truth of the cross to its readers here, but wish they would keep distinctions and not conflict grace and justice and most certainly not apply it to all the world. I think the distinction is not made because eventually in the study, the acts of justice they give as examples are in fact acts of compassion. Acts of compassion are not the same as acts of justice. One is giving one what may not be deserved, while the other is giving what is deserved based on the law. I also wish they would have been clear in what sin is and its relation to God's law so that True justice could be explained here. We must be clear that justice is on account of God's law, while grace is on account of God's mercy. The cross exemplifies both, and is for those who repent and believe. Arise, unfortunately, has made the claim that Jesus should be seen in everyone, and that even the unwanted are brothers and sisters of Christ. So without this biblical distinction, confusion can arise. No pun intended, or maybe maybe pun intended there. So while Arise explains that God is just and it is his character, justice is not defined. Biblically, it is fairness or right judgment given in accordance with God's law. 
treating all people alike, no partiality in making judgments, and giving fair punishment to those who transgress the law. Justice is described as being at the heart of God, but God's law, the display of God's character, is not connected with justice. Essentially, justice is left to be determined by the reader and only connected with care for the marginalized, the poor, the discriminated against, and the outcast. How this is done is determined subjectively, though Arise will equate justice with social reconciliation. That is what we're going to look at in the next episode. As I close out this episode, I want to make something very clear. I do not want women to listen to this episode and become indifferent to the suffering around them and in the wider world. I do want women to have compassion for the lost. Whether those lost people are rich or poor, oppressors or oppressed, abusive or abused, it is that they are sinners, like we are, that should move us all to first proclaim the gospel and serve them in love because of that gospel. Two, I do not want women to think I'm saying that justice doesn't matter. I do want women to start with the right teaching in regards to true justice, and that must have God's character, his sovereignty, his holiness, his wrath, his mercy, his love, etc., and his law at the very foundation. This is what Arise lacks. God's law is completely missing from this study. While Arise uses scripture to pull out verses talking about justice, they do not exegete them, but interpret these verses with their own ideas of justice, and this will draw women away from clear scripture instruction. Those who are wives, mothers, and single ladies, dedicated to their families and active in service in the local church, may feel they're not pursuing God's heart and may burden themselves with if-equips idea of restoration and reconciliation through acts of justice. We'll look more at restoration and reconciliation in the next episodes. This was just the first week of the if-equip study arise, the beginning of the study that is to lay the foundation for why Christians should pursue justice. So while I appreciate Arise's proclamation of the gospel in week one, day two, its emphasis on the image of God in all people and its teachings that every person is due dignity and respect, it in no way, shape, or form connects God's law with showing us how one is to uphold human dignity, nor how it would bring to justice. It does not explain what it means to be made in God's image. It neglects the effects of the fall by reducing it to brokenness and ignores how that image in each one of us is now used to reject God because of our sinful nature. It doesn't describe humans as each one being in need of a savior because each one has committed injustice. Instead, rejected humanity is described as brothers and sisters of Christ, and throughout the study, you see a distinction made between those in power against those who are victims of injustice, those without power. And while this worldly distinction is true, spiritually, all are children of wrath. While Arise reserves wrath for those who commit the sin of injustice. Arise makes justice a gospel work done to advance the kingdom of God, while scripture talks of the advance of the kingdom as one done through a proclamation of the redemptive work accomplished through Christ. A proclamation that calls all people to enter the kingdom through Christ the door, John 10, 9-16, while justice and compassion are fruits of being in that kingdom. I hope I have shown the foundation if Equip Arise presents in the study is not only inadequate, but has social gospel underpinnings within it. And that type of teaching always leads women away from clear scripture and its exaltation of women's service to the home and the church. The world loves those who fight for justice and have great compassion. They write books and make holidays in celebration of them. Our own sinful flesh glories in the good act done when we give in this way. It's easy to fight for justice, give to the poor, and be a voice for the oppressed more than it is to proclaim to both the oppressed and oppressor that they are sinners in the hands of an angry God and will be given justice based on God's standard should they not repent and believe in Jesus Christ. This is quickly becoming an act of injustice by the world's standards. 
but to not warn all of the justice to come is the epitome of injustice. Acts of compassion and fighting for justice should always be accompanied with the proclamation of the gospel. And I myself need to acknowledge my own sin in this area. So justice and compassion are extremely, extremely important. Bring justice. Show no partiality to people God brings in your life. Serve all in whatever capacity God gives. Call all equally to repent and believe in the gospel and let God restore and reconcile them to himself. And go bear fruit in keeping with your faith in this gospel. Love God and love neighbor. And as you do, I pray you are in his word. Ladies, if you are interested in the transcript for this episode, you can go to ttew.org. You can find other great resources, articles, blogs, and videos that may bless you in your Christian walk, as well as links to follow me on social media. If you wish to contact me, you can email me at thoroughlyequipped316 at gmail.com. Again, the website address is ttew.org. Thoroughly Equipped is part of Striving for Eternity's Christian podcast community. Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity by assisting Christians to have an eternal perspective on life. They strive to bring evangelism, discipleship, apologetics, and Christian living together for the purpose of eternal preparation by exalting God, edifying and equipping the saints, and evangelizing the lost. They provide speakers, online articles, online courses, books, podcasts, and other theological resources, all centered on God's Word. To find out more, go to strivingforeternity.org. And to listen to other podcasts, go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org. I pray that their resources bless you as they have blessed me, as we live our lives day by day, praising and glorifying God.